goals of the Lean Out podcast is to complicate the dominant narratives. And my guest on the podcast today does this all the time in his work. He's an independent thinker, a prolific essayist, and as we'll hear in our conversation today, his views are often surprising, rarely conforming to the orthodoxies on either the left or the right. Wilfred Riley is a political science professor at Kentucky State University. His latest book is Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. Wilfred Riley is my guest today on Lean Out. Wilfred, welcome to Lean Out. Well, thanks for having me on. Great to be here. So nice to have you on the show. I've been following your work for some time. You are an incredibly prolific writer, and I find your kind of cool-headed, rational, data-driven analysis very compelling. Um, I don't know how you publish so much, given that you're also a professor. I wanted to start today by talking a little bit about your background. Uh, Much of the commentariat these days come from highly economically privileged backgrounds. That's not your story. It's not mine either. Talk to me a little bit uh, about your youth and how this may have given you a bit of a different perspective on the big issues of our day. Yeah, I think it really did. And that's actually an interesting point overall. I recently finished, I think it's Abraham Jack, a young African-American scholar, but his book, The Privileged Poor which is just entirely apolitical. It's not left or right, but it talks about how the Ivy League and even, you know, my own Big Ten have become Pac-10, have become sort of rich men and rich women's clubs. Like the huge majority of students come from families that make over, I believe it was $80,000 a year. U.S. uh, median household income for Caucasians, about 60,000 blacks, about 45. So that was that was a striking statistic. And as you get up into Harvard, I mean, a a huge chunk of students are actually from million dollar millionaire families. And the, the point of the book is that there are ways to get around that as sort of a smart, poor mom. You can send your kid to a charter school. You can use the Catholic system, which in Chicago costs less than $5,000 per year at a lot of institutions. So he argues that poor kids that come from these backgrounds that go to Loyola in New Orleans and then on to an Ivy do about as well as prep school kids. It's an interesting book. But the basic idea that most of the elite is rich, I mean, first of all, sounds relatively intuitive when you think about it, but you're looking at increasing growth along that trend line recently. And you're seeing it in professions like journalism that used to be very working class dominated. And I think that's had an enormous impact. When I think about those working class background guys that I know in journalism, they tend to be people like James O'Keefe from Project Veritas, who today are considered sort of, you know, entertaining rogues. But that used to be the entire, you know, Mike Royko, Michael Wilbon focus of that field. You would put on your gum shoes and you'd go walking around, talking to police contacts, talking to criminal contacts, for that matter, trying to figure out what was going on in your city. And I think that when we look at not to not to pick on a Twitter sparring partner or something, when you look at, say, the Taylor Lorenz School of Journalism today, there does seem to be a lot more of contacting other members of the elite and just sort of getting their written opinion on things as versus the the traditional pattern of you know journalistic outreach. There, I mean, for that matter, there's a lot of just engaging in silly high school 
feuding among your social class. I mean, all these people are wired into Twitter, often Insta, similar sites. You see them arguing about who broke up with who and so on down the line. That's actually one of the reasons, like, I mean, I'm doing pretty well now and I'm on social media too much, obviously. But I mean, I do try to post data or my latest article or something as opposed to, I mean, several of my ex-girlfriends actually are reasonably well known as opposed to arguing with them about our relationship or you know, cr- sparring with Rod Graham about the left versus the right. We did that for about half a year, that kind of thing. So anyway, the overall pattern of the upper class being more and more ascendant, our Gini coefficient rising, that's something no one really disputes. My own background, though, finally getting to the point, is a bit different. Uh, I grew up in the hood, basically. Like, I was born in, you know, Chicago, Chicago, not, you know, the worst neighborhood in the city or anything, but I was born on the south side. Um, I ended up moving to the north side, pre-gentrification Wicker Park. If you're familiar with Chicago, Wicker Park is our arts district. And now it's just unbearably pretentious, you know, stores selling $300 tote bags, very New York feel. Kids on a skateboard signed by their favorite graffiti artists sipping lattes on the street. But when I lived there in the 80s and 90s, it was a reasonably dangerous area. It was also known as one of the city's big dope purchase spots. People jokingly called it Needle Park. So I lived there for a while. Um, The Chicago public school system is very bad. So for academic and athletic reasons, I moved to nearby uh, East Aurora when I was 12 or 13. But that also is a working class, uh, fairly tough area. I mean, at the time that this was happening, 97, 98, Aurora was actually the murder capital, not of the country, but of the Midwest. Because the projects in Chicago, the jets had been torn down and black gangs from the city were coming out and clashing with the local Latino and Caucasian gangs. So, I mean, one year, I believe, with the city had a population of about 200,000 people. We had something like 38 murders. Um, And this this went on throughout my childhood period. The city has since calmed down through the useful expedient of throwing all the criminals in jail, which works. But uh, I mean, that was that was the background. I was I was born in Chicago. I lived in Chicago and had a pretty typical I was kind of a nerdy would be jock. I mean, just a normal kid. But I mean, I had a typical urban 80s and 90s experience, which if you've ever watched kids or New Jack City or something was fairly gritty, very interesting. A lot of uh, first experiences early on. And, you know, then moved to another kind of working class city and had the same experience. I still own property in uh, actually not Chicago, in East Aurora. I go back reasonably often. But that that was my background. And from there, one thing that did help me was that my mom actually is a member of probably the ruling class would be an accurate description. She's a Chicago ward. She's a well-known black family. Uh, She herself has a master's degree, had of R.I.P., but a master's degree from Roosevelt University, so on down the line. And for a variety of reasons, I think a lot of people were very caught up in the 1960s and 70s movement. My mom was a feminist and wrote on the topic. I mean, my father's Caucasian. I mean, he, again, a Celtic background, not not a millionaire by any means, but both of them were part of this sort of activist, we're going to change the world generation. So she ended up, for most of my teen and young adult life, she was an inner city school teacher. She actually taught in East Aurora High School. But, I mean, there was a weird contrast between, like, me playing basketball in the hood and then, like, we had Lebanon Park, which is one of the better-known athletic locations in the Chicago inner suburbs across the street from my house. So I'd come home having done that, you know, with junkies sitting by the court. You don't want to exaggerate. A lot of families as well. Then my mom would be reading 
you know, some the I think bitch and bust had come out by this point and she'd be like circling articles and, you know, asking me if I'd done my Play-Doh homework to get ready for the, you know, AP, whatever exam. So, I mean, I, I do think that just the idea of having a working class background that that toughens you, that sort of thing, that can be exaggerated, particularly in my political faction, kind of the business center right. You're now seeing this idiotic idea that kids shouldn't go to college because college leans left, you know, go be a plumber. I have great respect for people that are doing well in the plumbing profession. But no, like if you get into Yale and your other option is being an HVAC guy, you should go to Yale. Just, you know, it's, it's blue book graded. You can be reasonably honest, you know, when you're when you're filling things out. So but at any rate, that that duality um, was something that was there for much of my early life. And I ended up basically just going to college, partly because of that influence. Um, the standard system, I went to the, the Illinois schools. Basically, I went to Southern Illinois for undergrad. I went to Illinois for law school. I ended up getting to law school. Uh, I probably would have gone on to graduate school at the University of Illinois, but Southern Illinois actually offered me a, a full fellowship to get my PhD. And I prefer free money. So I went, I went down there, but that, so that was, I mean, at that point, things became pretty conventional. Like I was, I was definitely a working class kid, but I did after my first year of college, there was an adjustment period. I did fairly well. And the idea was, you know, I'm going to have some interesting experiences here as well. And I'm you know, never going to forget like the old block or the Chicago rave theater or something, but I would definitely like to go on and get a traditional job and that sort of thing. So from that point, I, I had an interesting life, but the, the concentration of working class experience, having a number of friends that were killed, that sort of thing, that was primarily early on. The last brief comment here, I think, that did convey, and Thomas Sowell has said this as well, someone obviously who ended up as an, an intellectual with fairly similar views, absolutely intolerant of racism and so on, but on at least the center-right politically, very quantitative um, one of the things I saw was the absolute dichotomy between what people were talking about when I got to the academy and the actual problems in working poor areas across ethnic lines. So, I mean, growing up, the biggest problem in the black and Hispanic community was violence, specifically gang violence. And there was there was just no way to excuse that. I mean, there would be 40 or 50 people a year, essentially, I mentioned 38 in one year in a mid-sized community, the size of Dayton, Ohio, getting shot to death, you know, and there were other problems around this. I mean, when I think of my Caucasian friends at the time, many people were using fairly hard drugs. Uh, suicide was certainly, this was the Nirvana era. I mean, that was becoming, one would never say trendy, but the rates were increasing. People would simply kill themselves and the availability of guns and drugs and so on facilitated that. You know, sexuality at this point began for a lot of people at 13 or 14, which I notice has dramatically changed, which is a bit bizarre. But at any and obviously with other people of that age, I didn't have any fascinating stories about 36 year old seducers or something like that. But I mean, so those were the actual issues. I mean, teen pregnancy was very common at this time. And when I got to the academy and people were discussing, you know, the systemic racism of the gaps and this sort of thing. It struck me that a lot of this just wasn't true, that it was rich people trying to put these complex, highly politicized spins on things that were fairly easy to understand. I did also want to um, touch on woke politics, um, sure. something that I cover quite a bit. 
something I think is quite difficult for a lot of people to unpack. We just had this moment again of everybody trying to define it. Bethany Mandel choked in this interview with uh, the former Bernie Sanders press secretary, Brianna Joy Gray, many on the left, including Toure, who you quoted, restating the claim that this word is a racist dog whistle. And you wrote about the controversy for National Review. Um, you said you've defined it even two years ago. So how do you yes. define woke? It's not hard to define. I'll actually, uh, so James Lindsay, who again, in terms of like that diverse urban mix of people is kind of a fascinating dude. Like he didn't begin wealthy either. Uh, great, very solid, like academic level mathematician. Uh, enjoys a lot of shit talking on Twitter, which I think yeah, yeah. affects a perceptions a little bit. And again, there there is a question of should most professionals, I'm not bashing you know, James's career decisions here at all, but should most professionals be on social media arguing with each other? Like to the point where I can insult Bernie Sanders. That's actually a fascinating question. I remember I, I don't dislike Bernie. I actually have a sympathy for the old true left. But for a period of time, I responded to Bernie Sanders every couple of days by asking if he was still alive. Like, you OK, big hoss? You OK? You doing OK? Um, but so is that valuable? That That's interesting. But that that's a bit different from James's scholarly uh, work. He was the guy who was responsible with Helen Pluckrose and Peter Bogosian, as you know, yeah. for the Sakal hopes where they wrote Sakal 2, where they wrote these absolutely insane papers, um, which included I, I don't know what this line made it the final paper, but which included things like is the doggy position feminist for animals? You know, just absurd stuff. That was in a paper. I'm not just saying that to be funny or crude. That was in a paper about whether dog park humping illustrates negative attitudes toward feminism. I remember when I read that, I was like, my mom and my first girlfriend would think this was hilarious, but they would never think it was real. That was published in like Hypatia. I mean, so like feminist journals were like, yes, yes, queen. You know, so anyway, that actually is a great segue into what woke politics is. I think most of it's bullshit. But James, and th that's very separate, by the way, from the idea that there's still an enormous amount of class oppression and some race oppression in the USA. Those are those are two different things. The people that are promoting woke ideology are not poor. So almost by definition, you can't go to Stanford. Anyway, so James has a one sentence definition of wokeness, which is simply a woke person is a person who's accepted modern critical consciousness. And then the problem with that is that there's a page-long definition of critical consciousness, but that's that's fairly accurate. I think my definition is kind of in between those two. It was actually popular enough when I first said this, uh, sort of sparring with Nina Turner online, that it became a meme. But uh, my definition is there really are three components to woke ideology. The first is the idea that society is intentionally currently set up to oppress. The second is that all gaps in performance show this oppression. And the third is that the solution is equity, which is closing gaps, not through performance, but simply by assignment, by proportional representation, regardless of performance. So that's it. I mean, point one, society is set up to oppress, not is sometimes oppressive if you're black or Jewish, but is set up to do this. And college applications is a commonly cited absurd example of this. Um, two, all gaps show this oppression and three solutions equity. And it's worth unpacking that a little bit because none of those points is me being kind of Twitter funny or exaggerating anything. These are the things that people said. So Rich Delgado uh, and uh, Gian Stefanczyk, of course, shouldn't forget. But I mean, in the first book, Critical Race Theory, say racism's every day, it's everywhere, it's intentional, you're not imagining it. So if you apply to college and you are Black, that system is set up to disadvantage you. That's absurd given, I mean, I'm 
a college professor, like I, I understand what the average SATs by group are. You know, we on the minority side, I think, are catching up, but that that's simply not accurate. But it's a point very serious people have made. Point two, I think, is the big one. If I had to get into one key element of wokeness, this is this is Dr. Ibram Kendi. This is Robin D'Angelo. But it's the idea that if you find a gap in performance, you found racism. And what they do here is actually quite high IQ. It's a little tricky, as, as I enjoy debate from a debater standpoint. But the argument is that there really are only two options, like actual inferiority is a term you often hear, which I, I think the implication is genetic inferiority there, or two, racism, right? So like, if you don't think it's racism that causes this black, white, or this male, female gap, are you a genetic bigot? You racist? And the reality there is you have to kind of dodge the Kafka trap or the leg hold trap and say, well, no. I mean, one thing I always point out, and this is this is true from crime rate discussions on the right to wealth discussions on the left, the modal average age for a black man is 27. For a white man, it's 58. So before you can discuss a difference in crime, you first have to compare, I would pick 35-year-old white and black men to adjust for both. There, there's more late life domestic abuse for Caucasians, more early gang culture for blacks, but just pick a group of men that are middle age, the age when most crime is committed, what's the difference there? And you're going to be seeing something very different than if you're just comparing the 27-year-old guy with the 58-year-old guy. So the the core argument, I think, is just wrong. But that is the core argument, that every gap indicates this prejudice. Why are there fewer female garbage men? Sexism. You know, and I think that anyone who looks at that with kind of a logical, you know, unfiltered perspective is going to ask some questions. Does size make a difference if you're riding through Brooklyn on a truck throwing cans into the back? Do women want to be in the business of trash cleanup? You know, so on down the line. Like, and you might attribute this one to sexism a bit, but are more women at home because they're home managers and they're not working at all? So until you adjust for all that stuff, you can't just point at difference X and say it proves thing Y, but that is that is the core of wokeness. And then I think you're seeing more of the equity argument now. So, I mean, I've been a boss often. I mean, equity in practice just means like 12% blacks, 14% Hispanic, 60% whites. Like very few people are sitting down and thinking about how can I implement a tutoring program? These are things I actually like to do at some point in life, actually. But how can I implement a tutoring program that will bring kids in this group up to the level of kids in this group, perhaps by spending more time with them if that's needed? There is a there is an idea that equity could be valuable, but it's not what anyone in practice is doing. Mm. Like in practice, Harvard is 16% black because the USA is close to 16% black. The problem with that, of course, is that the average black SAT score is, you know, 120 to 150 points below the average white score. So you're just taking a bunch of black kids and putting them in an environment where they're not going to do very well often when they would have killed it at Michigan. It's not like being 100 points behind the average at Harvard is bad. But so that that is that is what equity is in practice. And so that those are my points, one, two and three. Mm -hmm. It's it's really interesting. I mean, one of the things I love about your work is it's constantly complicating the narrative. Um, And I want to talk a little bit about who is kind of advancing this ideology. So um, Robin D'Angelo, I know you published a critique of white fragility. She recently had this kind of crazy quote saying people of color need to get away from white people. (laughs) Yeah. I'm really at a loss about how to talk about this movement among progressive white people. On the one hand, I don't want to um, give in to this tide of racialized thinking. On the other hand, 
those with the most extreme views on sort of the quote unquote woke topics do tend to be white women. And you've noted in Commentary Magazine, the wokest group of Americans is college educated, upper middle class white women. So how do we think and talk about this trend? Yeah, I mean, and there there are a couple of fairly non-serious responses I could give there, but to give a very serious one, I mean, I, I think the most, when I worked on a sales floor, really, I wasn't on the trading floor side, but upper end bullpen for a couple of years, people would use the term PA, professionally aggressive. So just say exactly what the truth is, but don't be an asshole. And that was my entire sales strategy. Like, do, do you think I'll make money if I purchase this from you? A client might say, yeah, I absolutely do. You know, here's why. But, you know, also, I'm, I'm a serious guy as well. This is my, my ninth call today. Like, if, if you, these are some possible limits, these are some advantages. This is actually, I mean, there are techniques for this sort of thing. And this is what I think the truth is. And it actually worked very well, as opposed to, you know, the stereotypical screaming, like, it's going to the moon. You know, and that is that is how I communicate. I mean, I also have been known to drink a glass of red wine at a party. I mean, I I actually, first of all, I don't necessarily seek out these issues. I mean, I think most people most of the time are much more interested in, you know, their their love life and financial future and the arts and their city and so on than they really are in ethnic clashes between blacks and whites or something like that. But I mean, the reality, I guess, is okay, so to get to the point, just say things that are true politely. The And I don't think there's a better answer than that. One thing that I will say that I do think is pretty important here is that most people don't believe the more extreme woke stuff at all. Um, and this is this is emperor has no clothes level shit. Excuse the language. Like, it's just the extent to which it's true is striking. So on uh, social media, but with, in a couple of occasions, links to pretty serious sites like SurveyMonkey, I asked some of these questions that everyone is supposed to believe. I was curious about what the actual percentage of true believers was. Um, so one of those questions was, do you think your upper middle class Black and Asian friends are oppressed? One of those questions was a direct quote from Gad Sad, debating a feminist writer. Do you believe that some women have nine inch penises? Um, and there were a couple others along those lines. All of them had the potential to be funny, but they were also serious things that people have said in very high level televised or academic debate. And I have kind of a bro audience, but it also includes, you know, the partners of most of those people who are upper middle class, white or black women. It includes just people I've met throughout my life. There are about 100,000 total followers across social. So I expected maybe like 25%, of course, that's true. And 75%, no, I don't accept that anonymously. What we actually found was that in response to the, like, can you actually be a real in every sense woman is a trans woman question? Like, do some women have nine inch penises? And then the more detailed follow-up, the the yes rate was 2%. And I've, I've done this a couple of times because I thought the first time it had to be a mistake, but no, it was 2%, 3%, 1.9%. So I think that almost no one actually accepts a lot of this stuff. Even things that are more debatable, like does race exist? I think most people would say, well, the classic races that like the appropriately named buffoon drew up. No, but are there obvious categories you can put people into when you're picking sides at the gym or when you're on a dating app or something like that? Of course there are. You know, the average Samoan guy weighs, I believe, 70 pounds more than the average Caucasian or black man. So those are just things that are there that people recognize. And there's actually a joke on kind of the heterodox internet, a pattern recognition. 
just sort of like you keep seeing the same thing over and over. And the use of the joke converge into racism, but it's also obviously just accurate. You know, when you think of a woman, an adult human female, there are many things that come to mind that are hard to replicate one by one by one if that's something that you are attempting to be, I guess would be the word. So anyway, what we found, what I found was that almost no one accepted a lot of these core claims. And I, I think that is pretty important. Mm. When you're talking to an audience of, say, upper middle class white women, what I've and I've frequently talked to this audience uh, for groups like FAIR, for example, or Braver Angels. What I generally find is that there are one or two sort of red guard types that really keep insisting like, well, you know, this has to be true. And then there's the entire body of other people who can be swayed or, in fact, don't believe the narrative at all. So, I mean, another piece of advice other than BPA would be talk to the people that are not religious to some extent. Um, I remember talking to a priest once when I was in high school, and the priest advised against a whole range of things. And he was very honorable as a Catholic priest. He's supposed to tell me this, you know, but he advised against a whole bunch of things from, let's say, dating to schoolyard scuffling to, you know, any involvement with intoxicating liquors. This just went on and on. And I remember at one point in the conversation, just thinking the exact sentence, I guess I'm just not that pious. And that was it. Like, I just sort of went on with my life. Like, I try to be reasonably honorable. I'm somewhat amoral in the way most people who've done business are. and Not in personal life. But I mean, it just like the guy gave his religious advice. I listened to it. I respect him as a religious divine. And then I went and did my own thing. And I think that's how most people approach this. Talk to them. And when the, when the dam breaks on this, and I hope it doesn't lead to, say, a rollback of traditional gay rights or something like mm, that. Yeah. But when the dam breaks on this, I think it's going to be pretty intense. Like the like the other day when we saw the trans school shooter at the Christian school the day before Trans Day of Vengeance. And then you saw the lead USA Today headline worries about backlash abund in the trans community. I mean, you just see people looking at this with utter disgust. So. Eventually, you're going to see what you saw at the end of the Soviet Union, what you saw at the end of the Stasi era, where people are just like, nah, not anymore. I'm just not that pious. Mm. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up gay rights um, and, you know, the the sort of toxic dialogue around some of the trans issues as well. And, and the real potential, I think, for some um, dangerous events, you know, um, you... I want to ask you about a tweet that you sent recently. You're a prominent conservative. You don't hesitate to criticize your own side. And I saw you tweeting basically against some of this homophobia that we're seeing on the right. Talk talk to me a little bit about your concerns on that. So first of all, I don't I don't object to the conservative title at all. By the way, I think it's I think it's a little annoying when both progressives and right wingers do that. I mean, we only have two political parties. So I mean, like I'm to the right of about fifty five percent of people. Male usually wears a tie. So okay, sure. I will say that my attitude is not movement conservatism really at all. Um, my attitude would be basically shit has to work, and this again goes back to having kind of a, a working class urban upbringing. I once did a whole long interview with I think Bridget Fetisy where we talked mm. about this as being like city kids, where you'd get on the bus, there'd be like people having sex if it was two o'clock in the morning, or there'd be like every there's so much graffiti on a Chicago or New York bus, you can't look out the window to find your stop. And like, you just, you can't have that to some extent. I mean, so what are my conservative positions? Uh, absolutely, especially when it comes to, you know, brutality outside of consensual fighting, extreme domestic violence and the like. I mean, 
gang violence, you got to crack down on crime. If that requires incarcerating a large percentage of young males, then it does. You know, teach them a trade while they're locked up. Um, same perspective on immigration. Immigrants are great, hardworking people. They need to come here legally. We already have a lot of great, hardworking people. The bluntest thing I've ever heard said about immigration was from one of my black students at K-State. He was talking about Ukraine and Guatemala specifically. And he was like, why, why would I logically want to let in tens of millions of people from Caucasian failed states? And that's a little more brutal than my take, but it's an honest one. I mean, so there, there has to be some reason to allow mass crossing of your borders. So that would be a conservative position. You know, taxes are the classic one, like get your hand out of my pocket. And that actually is one of the least important right wing positions to me. But gun rights, I mean, that, that's a position I can defend. The basic idea is that society has to be functional. You can't have a business climate, but more importantly, you can't have safety for, say, young female residents of your city if you have a massive tent city right in the middle of your CBD, your core district. And when I travel, I mean, obviously, I've been to San Francisco talking, Oakland, Seattle. These are great cities, but this is a major problem. And interestingly enough, like I said jokingly online once that I really appreciated Portland because it kept proving the point that white cities were just as high crime if you didn't enforce the law. And I mean, it's true. I mean, their murders have gone from, I think, 13 to 97 over the past couple of years. And you mourn for the loss. But you can't do that. If you're trying to expand in the way that they were just a couple of years ago, and again, a great a gem of a city. I mean, like, you can't suddenly have murder increase a thousand percent. So that's, I suppose, what I'm conservative about. Crime, migration, arms for free people, not abusing those who can't currently defend themselves. But anyway, um, in terms of the point here wasn't like, is there a logical conservatism or something? It was, why am I criticizing a lot of the American right? Um, because it's impossible to ignore the undercurrent there, I think. So this this is a real issue, and this is what makes like uh, Bridget Fantasy would describe herself as politically homeless, and there are a yes. lot of people that you that use that exact label. It's, it's the name of a podcast. Almost everyone hates contemporary wokeness. Like no one who's not a coward who came from a working class Irish or Italian neighborhood really wants some black Stanford graduate yelling at them about how oppressive and privileged they are. Um, that's just, it's widely despised. I think you're like I said about to see the dam break. But on the other side, and again, as a male bro, I have no beef with this guy. But when I see a lot of my friends listen to, say, Matt Walsh, the response is kind of, would this guy, you know, put me back in the kitchen or the closet or whatever the case might be, given the chance, given the power? Mm. And I don't think that's an entirely unreasonable worry at all. Um, so... I mean, I've, I've mentioned my you know, different polls and you know, how sophisticated they've been and all this stuff. I'll give one that wasn't all that great for my side. I just openly asked, following a question about transgenderism, and how many of you would support gay marriage, which now has been in place in many states for decades. Mm -hmm. I have close gay married friends. Obergefell was 11 years ago. And something like 35% of the men were like, no, nah, just get rid of it. So, I mean, I think that there is obviously on... Within not even the right, this isn't like Mitt Romney or something. I don't think Mike Pence cares about at least a second of these issues. But within the anti-woke movement, there clearly is a group of people that doesn't much like gay people or, for that matter, minorities. So a lot of people are looking at this and they're saying, well, over here, we have someone who strikes me as an open racist. If you're looking at Robin D'Angelo's latest comment, whites and blacks need to get away from each other. I mean, that's Scott Adams. Level. That's exactly what he said. 
And then on the other hand, however, you, you're listening to a broadcast where someone is referring to people who are trans or even gay as weird, disgusting, perverts. And you're thinking, well, that person objectively sounds to me like a bigot. So who am I going to choose from? Uh, to me, you know, even fascism is better than communism. If you look at the historical death tolls, I can't see that's a glib statement. But I can't see picking wokeism over anything. I mean, as you actually start talking about moving back to a segregated campus and this kind of stuff, I don't see the equivalent of that on the right. But I think that it's very, very obvious that for many people, especially gay citizens, it's going to be really hard to join in that movement because the worry is going to be what's the next thing that's going to happen. You know, if trans, I mean, we we just saw uh, Dobbs overturn Roe v. Wade. I mean, so in many states, in Florida and Kentucky, I mean, it's not that you're restricting abortion to the first trimester with an exception for rape or incest or something that might not be Democratic Party policy, but that people would support. It's that you're instituting bans on abortion at a month or six weeks. Um, I'm not going to go into a whole lecture about women's physical bodies, I assume, as a woman. You're probably aware of the issues involved here. But I mean... You can't ban DNCs at one month logically. You may might correct me here, but you're not going to know you're pregnant for a couple of weeks after the ban. So the getting to the point, the conflict between that on the one hand, wokeness on the other, has a lot of people disgusted. What will people pick? It probably depends on individual politics. I suppose I'd still pick the anti-woke side. But an important point is that you can dislike two bad things. Or you can simply create a stopping point for yourself. So supporting watchful waiting or mental health care for kids that identify as trans, absolutely. Because the reality is that you can't change your sex. And doing irreparable damage to your body at 13 is not a good idea. So, I mean, I'm, I'm absolute on that one. On the other hand, I absolutely oppose, for example, making gay marriage illegal or turning that back over to the state. So I guess that... That would be the position. As you shift toward point B from point A, where we are, my politics might shift. And that might be the case for a lot of other people. Mm. I mean, these are really probably the biggest issues of our age. It's really hard to know where we go from here. Our political climate is incredibly polarized. Um, our politics have gotten quite toxic. I would, however, like to end on a bit of a note of hope, <laughs> just to leave uh -huh. everyone uh, with something, you know, I, I saw you're good friends with Angel Eduardo of uh, Fire, oh, yeah. another thinker I admire. And he came up with a term, uh, Starman, which I know you endorse. What is that? And how might this concept help us kind of get out of some of the extreme moment that we're in right now? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And I've always liked Angel's idea. Starmanning is it's a comment, not from me, as you said, it's from the thinker Angel Eduardo. But it's basically the idea that you assume that your debate opponent or your political opponent means most of what they're saying. It really, it's a very core, simple concept. But I mean, the the thing that inspired the Starman comment was a, a right-wing commentator that overall I don't dislike, veteran, no, no need to drop the names of everyone in the thread, but said something that was just remarkable at following the Nashville shooting. Like none of these people on the left care how many kids are killed. Their only goal is restricting guns. I forget what it was. It was something just very political, like related to like local elections, almost in his area. This is their goal. And I remember reading through that and thinking, no, that's absolutely not true. 
Like you can strongly dislike the organized hard left, which in most cases I do, while also recognizing that like black mothers against gun violence or something actually just really doesn't want more kids to get shot. It's the same thing with the pro-life movement, by the way. I mean, if you ever talk to Lila Rose or one of these people, the argument that they'll hear constantly is you guys are a bunch of submissive Stepford wives who just want to be dominated by strong, manly husbands. Sometimes it gets into a little fetishistic hearing the descriptions of what they allegedly want. Interestingly enough, you kind of wonder which side feels which way about this. But I mean... I, I don't think that's true at all. I think that Lila or most people that are in the mainstream pro-life movement actually just think that past either conception or three months or so, the fetus is a baby and you shouldn't kill it. So, I mean, I think that whether or not you agree with that, or even I agree with that, it, it's a good idea to take that position seriously. Because if you assume that your opponent is basically telling the truth, not about life, but about what they want, then you can at least start moving toward understanding. So, I mean, one of the questions I would have for Lila or for someone who's a hardcore pro-lifer is, okay, well, if the birth rate doubles, what are you going to do about it? Like, you guys aren't just talking about banning abortion in the third trimester. Again, you got to emphasize what these laws are. I've been reviewing them for my constitutional law class over the past couple of weeks. These are not things that most people would support. You're talking about banning abortion at four, six, or eight weeks. Or I, I think the Walsh and Rose position would be after conception, uterine wall implantation, whatever the, the the technical description would be. This was jokingly described by a female friend of mine as after a good second date, like immediately after it, pregnancy becomes possible, the law would take effect. And that would have staggering effects on society. So what what is the plan on the right if the birth rate among primarily working poor women, by the way, I mean, the two groups most likely to get abortions are urban African-American women and essentially white college feminists, like women who are struggling or going to community college or something like that, who are age about 22. And those are not necessarily the groups that have received the most largesse from the right. So if this increase happens and it's concentrated among these populations that don't vote for you. What are you going to do about it? And I, I think the star man question, star man assumption would be that there is an answer that people would propose that could be adoption, that could be an increase in funding to the crisis pregnancy movement, that could be better sex education, which a lot of modern pro-lifers would support. The opposition is not to sex, it's to abortion. So coming from that basically positive position, you can actually have a conversation that centers on what would you do? And I, I think that's a critical question. What would you do? The assumption of Angel, and I, I think he's a little generous here, but basically correct. The assumption of Angel is that most people want to solve social problems. Most people do want fewer dead kids. So the question is how to do that. Is it to remove guns from the mainstream or is it to harden the schools as targets or is it a little bit of both? If you begin by assuming that your opponent is a disingenuous liar, you just yell at one another and nothing ever gets done, neither Right now, we're in a position where guns, no major gun laws have been passed, and we also haven't hardened the schools. This is my opinion as somebody who does professional consulting in a space related to that. I was a pistol instructor for the NRA for a while. So this, this just hasn't happened for 10 years because of maximal distrust. And that's problematic. That should be avoided. One absolute last sentence, though, not to break from the positive general message, but a problem with 
A specific problem I have with a lot of woke activism that you're now seeing a counterpoint to on the right is that people are just openly being disingenuous. So don't be a sucker, I guess. Like, if you have one of those internet-style conversations where someone asks, okay, can I see a reference for your position? You provide one. Okay, what about another one? And then you provide one. Can you explain the morality? Okay, you do that once. And someone keeps attempting to bar what you are saying that is true from becoming reality. I don't think that you have to assume that that person is still acting with the best of intentions or something like that. But as a starting point, that should be the baseline. Everyone wants people in society to be alive and healthy and prosperous. And I think during a lot of debates like COVID, we absolutely haven't seen that mutual assumption. The assumption is that your opponents politically are trying to kill you. And that's almost never true. Hmm. Well, that is a good point to leave it. Um, I really appreciate how much, as I said earlier, your work really complicates the narrative. And uh, it was great to have you on today. Thanks for coming on. Thanks thanks for having me on. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Substack.com.